Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. The Washington Report. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is the evening runway. I'm Elliot Danker. It's time now for the Washington Report where we take a look at key headlines out of the United States. So over the weekend, 120 countries voted for a United Nations resolution calling for a sustained humanitarian truce in Gaza. The U.S., like Israel, has sharply criticized the effort and was one of 14 countries that voted against it. Now, how the world view Israel's assault on Gaza and whether the war is being enabled by the United States? A couple of questions I'm going to pose to Tricia Craig, Vice President, Engagement and Senior Lecturer of Social Sciences, Sociology and Political Science for Yale and U.S. College. Tricia, good afternoon. It's always good to speak with you. Hi, Elliot. Great to be back. So that resolution, I suppose, is where we're starting off, uh, 14 countries voted against it, including Israel, the United States, 45 countries abstained. Only 12 countries joined Washington and Israel as Jordan's motion was passed at the General Assembly. Let's let's talk optics here, Tricia. How does this look for the United States? You know, I think it shows that the U.S. and Israel are generally isolated internationally on questions of Israel. And when we look at, you know, the countries that you would normally expect to go along with the U.S., it's really stunning how few of the U.S. traditional large allies sided with it. Um, So you have Canada, Australia, U.K., Japan, Korea um, abstaining. And I think it also shows that there's a division among Western countries. Eight EU countries, including France and Spain, voted in favor. A lot of countries abstained, and a few smaller ones voted to block the measure. I've got a difficult question, Tricia. And there are a lot of things to consider here. You look at COVID, you look at the relevance of Asia, ASEAN, you look at where the business is flowing, just on the economics point of view. And then you've got this situation. Before that, of course, you had the whole uh, Ukraine-Russia war. Mm-hmm. Does the United States position even matter anymore? Are we shifting away from that slowly? Well, I, you know, I think you're right to highlight what, what these conflicts say about the global role of the U.S. because there there is a shift. You know, Israel, I think, is maybe a unique case. The U.S. has been its strongest and most steadfast ally for the past 75 years. But it also does speak to the general issue of global power. Mm. So the U.S. wields power there in Ukraine because of the massive amount of assistance it provides. But it's not capable of ending the war in either place. And, you know, and I think under President Biden, there's been a concerted attempt to rally allies to align with the U.S. position. But there are certainly limits to that and how effective, you know, the Western coalition has been in achieving some of its objectives. I think what we're seeing is that countries are going to pursue their own objectives. So with respect to the U.N. vote, you know, we see some traditional allies peeling off because their own interests dictate otherwise. So Spain, which sees itself as a power broker in the Middle East, obviously it's a U.S. ally, but it often sides with Arab countries on Middle Eastern issues. And the U.S. effort to isolate Moscow over the invasion of Ukraine, it has enjoyed support among Western allies. But if you look at a map, not much of the rest of the world. And that means that, you know, U.S. sanctions that were supposed to have a devastating effect on the Putin regime have really not had the effects that they've hoped. Russian trade and engagement with places like, you know, you mentioned um, the rest of the world, places like India, South Africa, those have risen remarkably over the last year. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it's interesting, especially I think someone in your position that's that's looking at these optics and that ever changing style. The weapons are very different now. For those of us old enough, would remember how former U.S. President Bush reacted with regard to Kuwait, or even his son with reaction to 9/11. Um, Post Trump, you see a lot of pulling out of U.S. troops, so the police isn't in town anymore. So that's gonna factor into the narrative as well. That's right. And I think those issues also speak to a particular domestic narrative in the U.S. There is not much appetite for the U.S. to engage, certainly not in um, presence in many countries, but even I think that there is a sense of exhaustion with places like Ukraine. You know, there still is support for it, but I think you're seeing it starting to waver a bit. Mm. Speaking of Trump, his former vice president, Mike Pence, has pulled out of the 2024 presidential race. He's struggling to gain traction and he is the most high-profile candidate to drop out so far. Uh, This comes uh, before the third presidential debate on, I believe, November 8th in Miami. He hasn't even qualified for that yet. Are we really surprised here? And all of this seems to be just like a formality because who from the Republican side can even challenge Mr. Trump? That's right. I mean, it was slightly a surprise in terms of the timing. Okay. Um, since there had been nothing in the in Pence's you know announcements to the to the press about what he was going to talk about in Las Vegas, which is where he was on Saturday when he announced he was uh, dropping out. But honestly, you're right. The writing was on the wall. He struggled mightily with fundraising. His poll numbers were low single digits, and you're right. He was not yet qualified for the uh, November eighth debate. Which, so I mean, basically that campaign was in essence a zombie campaign and he just put it out of its misery. Yeah. Actually, I mean, I wondered at first, okay, with Pence dropping out, does anyone else from the Republican Party benefit from this? I want to change that to would Donald Trump even need, I mean, this is this something that needs to happen to benefit Donald Trump or, or was he already in a very strong position? He was already he was already in a very strong position. I mean, he's he's polling around 63 percent of the Republican electorate and Pence was you know, five, six percent. And the people who support Pence are probably not going to support Trump. But, you know, how are those six percent of voters going to be divided up? Well, they'll go to some of the other candidates who are also struggling. So, no, it doesn't really matter very much for Trump. I really wonder what's in his mind right now. But uh, I guess that's another conversation altogether, (laughs) Tricia. All right. This is a bit of a union issue. The United Auto Workers Union and Salantis have agreed to a tentative deal following roughly six weeks of targeted U.S. labor strikes. We've been reading about it in the papers. The deal now is pattern of a 4.5-year agreement reached between the union and Ford Motor last week. Uh, Could you explain these tentative uh, agreements uh, for us, Tricia? Yes. So the UAW, the United Auto Workers Union, they settled first with Ford, and the agreement is a 25% pay increase over four years, but there's an immediate 11% rise. There are cost of living adjustments, uh, gains in pension and job security issues, and then over the weekend also Stellantis, which is former Chrysler, they followed suit, and so they have now agreed to the UAW's terms. They've also agreed, surprisingly, to keep or to reopen a plant in Illinois that they had closed. You know, I think this is generally a good outcome. Both car makers will have to take this to its reps for passage, but there's no reason to think that it won't pass. I think it's important uh, to note that there's been general support among the American people for the strike. Um, So I think we we will see that passed pretty quickly and the plants that have been closed 
due to strike action will probably reopen quite soon. And what's General Motors thinking here? Because they haven't reached an agreement yet, probably sitting on the sidelines, letting things play out. What are your thoughts on this? I think now that Stellantis has settled, GM will will settle pretty soon. I think what they're thinking is there are a couple of issues that complicate the GM negotiations, specifically around pensions. So one of the things, if you think back to the 70s and 80s, right, GM was the largest car manufacturer in the world. Mm -hmm. They had a lot more workers than than other car manufacturers. And so today they have a lot more pensioners. So that makes the settlement much more costly for them because of the pension increases. But I think the UAW has been incredibly effective and strategic in deploying strikes. So they have uh, they just announced that they were expanding the strike to um, GM Spring Hill plant that makes its big truck engines, which is a very profitable part of the business. So the longer the strike goes on, the more financial pain GM is going to face. And even before the move to shut down Spring Hill, the walkouts were costing General Motors four hundred million dollars a week. So increasing that number, that's really increasing the incentive for them to settle. All right. I've been speaking with Tricia Craig, Vice President Engagement and Senior Lecturer of Social Sciences, Sociology and Political Science for Yale and U.S. College. Tricia, as always, I appreciate your time. Take care and have a great Monday evening. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.